just finished reading it, you might really be interested in it. What's the title of the book? He said, The Cross and the Switchblade. I said, whoa, don't go any further with that. I am not interested in anything at all like that. You want to continue to visit me? Don't ever, ever, ever visit me with any intent of bringing religion into the visit. You understand? Hey again, my friends. Welcome to another episode. On behalf of Disciple of City, I'm Todd Carlton, and this is the Toddcast. On this podcast, we hear the story of how people's lives are changed by the truth of who Jesus is. My guest today was born in Peterborough, Ontario. He's now living in Sylvan Lake, Alberta. He was a member of Satan's Choice Motorcycle Club until Jesus changed his life. He's written a book called From Satan's Choice to God's Chosen, and he's now filled his life with sharing the gospel and sharing his story at many speaking engagements. Please welcome Billy Dalek. Hey, bro. <laughs> Hi, Todd. How you doing? Excellent. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you very much. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Yeah, appreciate you coming out, taking some time to come on the show with us. You're out here on a little uh, speaking engagement. You're speaking tomorrow at the Mercy of God Church here in Peterborough, which by the time this episode airs, you will have already spoken there. Mm-hmm. And friends, if you'd like to hear that, you could find uh, Mercy of God on Facebook and see Billy speaking. And you spoke last night down at Little Lake in Peterborough. Yes, we did. It was a wonderful uh, venue to be able to attend to. I hadn't been in that Del Crary Park area of Little Lake for 50 years. Yeah, that was the Good News Festival, the Ark of God Ministries and Disciple City partnering. Really good. It was cool. Like I had some old uh, public school buddies from uh, the 50s and 60s that showed up. Oh, awesome. And I hadn't seen them since then. That's awesome. It was awesome. So, Billy, let's go way back, man, to the beginning. You're born in Peterborough. When you were born and, and raised in this town, you said you lived here for about 20 years in Peterborough. Is that right? That's that's right, Todd. Um, uh, went to public school here, Prince of Wells. Um, went to high school, PCBS. Uh, quit high school in grade 10. Uh, right after football semester, first semester, football season was done. By that time, I had no interest any longer for learning anything uh school had to offer me i had another program in mind yeah did your were you uh did your parents go to church where you did you grow up in any kind of church i grew up in a single parent family so um my mother did take us children to church we went to all saints on ruby street and um that was short term really because of some experiences that occurred there and um i wasn't interested and refused basically to ever attend church again anywhere and wasn't interested in that wasn't wasn't my program yeah so you had grade 10 you leave school and you have other plans Mm -hmm. what what was that well really i wasn't really sure what it was um at that point, I was searching, 
like, what was my purpose here on this earth? And um, I'd already been to training school since I went there when I was 10 years old. And uh, that was brutal because uh, of all the abuse that occurred in that place. And uh, it really hardened my heart. Um, I come to basically hate anything that had to do with authority because of the brutality that occurred there by the authorities. So by the time the first release for me after, which was two years, um, I had developed a very bad attitude towards all authority. What, what what was this that you were in? Sorry, it was Ontario Training School, Coburg. So it's a reform school. Oh, okay, it, uh, like a, a a place that um, kids that would have been deemed incorrigible by the courts. So you did something you, like a juvie hall type thing. Not, well, it's kind of similar to that, but it's okay. like more like jail for children. Okay, it, it was a very strict, strict, ran routined disciplined, abusive environment. Um, very abusive. Like when I first went in there, basically, <laughs> but the only encounter I would have had uh, in as far as uh, 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 opposition would have been like a wrestling match with somebody. Yeah. Uh, within a week, I started to see blood wow from fighting fists and boots right in front of me with the authority sitting right there promoting it and it was a brand new culture that was right here mm. and i was in it and i couldn't get out of it and so this is you were like 15 10 you were 10 Wow. Yeah, I'd been in front of a magistrate three times in Peterborough by twice when I was nine. And then one last time. So each one of those times, I, I like I get off of the charges with probation. Right. The third and final time, the judge said, that's it. Like, we have a place for your type. You're incorrigible, and we have a place for your type. And so that was when they uh, ripped me out of my mother's arms and uh, took me away to this place. Wow. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, it was what it was. And um, so in these places, like, you you have two choices. You either are strong and you survive, or you're weak and you get stomped on. And in that case, then, too, you're there for a long time. Yeah, if you go in there. So and I guess you've got to make that choice pretty quick. You do have to, uh, like in, um, you see the program, like you see 
how people are getting released from here. And the way they're getting released is they're fighting, literally, and and beating up other kids. So really, like, in hindsight, they the, the authorities were using the kids to enforce discipline. Like, if you had done something wrong, the authority would say, okay, you teach him a lesson. Hmm. So they just gave you the green light <laughs> to go out and punch that guy out. That's horrible. It was horrible. And like I said, the more punching out you did, the quicker you got released. Yeah. That was the program. And if you didn't punch people out, you were there for a lot longer periods of time. So how what how old were you when you got out of there? Well, I was just just turned twelve. And you got the out the first time. Okay, so you got out for a bit and then went out back for six months. And yeah, they come and took me back again because being in more trouble with the law. And so, what were you doing? Like, if well, you're that a kid, time like, there, uh, yeah, that time I, uh, um, I, I got uh, into a change box in a telephone booth, and I was uh, able to open it to grab all the change out of it and somebody must have seen it occurring because it was taking a little too long I guess I wasn't focused on anything other than that change box and I'd just gotten a change out and put it in my pocket opened the door to get out of there and there's cop cars right there right now I, I tried to run away but so this I isn't you're not knocking off banks you're taking a change no, box from 12. a yeah no change box no, but, from a, yeah, but it was also um stealing bicycles at the um public school um and we were taking them down to a neighbor's house and stripping them down and um rebuilding them painting them selling them selling them to people who couldn't afford to you know go to a local bike shop and buy their kids bicycles so we're making a little money on it but, um uh, there was a few things but it all had to do with stealing yeah okay and so so you're in and out of that in your teens and so what, uh, what how did that transition into your later teens like when you got around like 17 18 well uh, like what did I, that lead to like i said uh todd um first of all when i got released the first time from the training school, um, when I went back to my public school, they didn't accept the fact that I'd uh, achieved to grade six level because they didn't think that the level of education was par with with their level here on the street. So they made me go back and repeat grade five. I'd already completed it, but they made me repeat it. So that puts me behind here. And then um, uh, grade seven, had an experience in class with a science teacher who um, wanted me to come up to the front of the class and explain my project that we all had been designated projects to do. And um, I I wasn't into speaking in front of anybody. 
I had a, um, a bit of an inferiority complex, I think, after having gone through the training school now twice um, and not having any respect for authorities, including teachers. Um, just a little side thing here. One of the gentlemen I met last night who I hadn't seen um, since public school that showed up at the park, he rem- he asked me, do you remember Mr. Wilson, who was the principal of the public school then? I said, oh, yeah, I remember him. He said, he used to follow you everywhere with the strap in uh-huh. his back pocket. I said, yeah, he sure did. Even them track and field team pictures we took, you can see he's standing right beside me, and he warned me. Before the photographs were taken, I'll be right beside you. <laughs> so um, this science teacher in grade seven made a fatal error. Because when I got up to explain my project, he'd said something that made the whole class laugh at me. Mm. I turned around and I punched him right in the head in front of that whole class. Wow. And he flew across the room and crinkled unconsciously into a little ball behind his own table. And I knew immediately, I'm not walking to the principal's office on this one. Yeah. I'm walking out the door. Yeah. He come running after me when he gathered himself, trying to force me to go to the principal's office. Wasn't happening. So I got kicked out of the entire Peterborough public school system in grade seven. My mother, it took her several months of appealing to the school board to allow me to return to school anywhere. And they finally said, okay, he's going to Confederation way down the south end. (laughs) But at least I got uh, finished grade seven off, and then I got my grade eight finished there and graduated finally, even though I didn't write an exam. I'd hand in exam papers with the one question answered with my name written across the top, get big fat zeros on everything, and they passed me. Yeah. Mm. They just wanted to get me out of, get rid of me. Pass you off. Yeah. So, and that was part for the course for me. So what, what decade is this just to give context to people listening? 60s. In the 60s, yeah. Because some people listening to hear that a teacher be standing beside you with a strap like that's unconscionable to a lot of people right but i get it like that's back then a gal contacted me uh about a year ago on facebook uh, who went to public school in peterborough at prince wells at that time she she said um i got sent out into the hall several times for talking or chewing gum and every time you were always down the hall getting the strap. And I seen you get the strap so many times, it scared me straight that I would never talk or chew gum again in class. <laughs> 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 it, it was it, basically, it was weekly. Yeah. I'd get the strap weekly. And that started in grade two. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they weren't on my uh, Mr. Congeniality list, and I wasn't on theirs. Well, apparently and we not. knew that. Yeah. You know, they just glare at me with, like, 
not acceptance in their eyes. There was one teacher, and he used to be a, a member of the Peterborough Peets, he, and he was our track and field coach. And, and he, of all of them, um, invested in me. And, and, and that was not in the class. That was out in the playground and down at the gym at the YMCA. Things that he saw I had talent of for yeah. and with. And, um, and so he tried to help that mature in me. He, he knew there was no sense. I had him for a teacher too. <laughs> I'd be staring out the window and he'd be teaching and he didn't have my attention at all. Yeah. But, but he tried to help you. He tried to help in that, in that way. And yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, so what happened in your later teens then in your late teens after, uh, uh, high school football in grade 10, uh, I'd been started to experience, uh, experiment with drugs by then. Um, uh, I was already, uh, robbing drug dealers, before I even took my first drug. Mm. <laughs> it just worked out that way. Yeah. Another story. It's a little bit involved, but um, it worked out that way. So I was experimenting with drugs and um, and um, getting into that world. And um, it was calling me. So um, I, I had to support I wasn't working. I wasn't, you know, living at home. So uh, I had to find methods to support my drug habit. And so, you know, again, I, I could resort back to thievery. Right. And uh, and that's that's what I did. And then um, I would uh, entrust people to uh, go on a score with me. And if we got caught, uh, I would be the one who was the culprit. I was the instigator. I was the one who planned it. I was the one that talked them into it. It's all me. It's they'd, all. They'd rat you out. They'd rat me out. So, so <laughs> when that started to happen, um, I started to. Wondering, well, like, who can I trust? Hmm. And and um, I thought I could trust these people, but apparently that wasn't true. And I would be the one to go to jail. So I ended up uh, several times again now in my later teens, like 17, uh, going to the Guelph Reformatory for three months stint. 28 days after that release, uh, I ended up in the Millbrook <laughs> Reformatory with uh, uh, a nine-month definite, 12 indefinite sentence. And um, so when I got out of there uh, on parole, I served eight months on that. I had 13-month parole uh, to, to continue to f- uh, finish out the sentence. Um, I, I, I only knew one thing by that point in time. I was still wondering what was my purpose, but I only kind of really knew one thing now, and that was um, um, drugs, stealing money for it, and 
basically that consumed me. So um, there was one final incident that occurred that I knew now exactly now who was going to be I could trust. And that was that motorcycle club. Well, so who did you, did you know somebody or like, how do you, oh, yeah. how do you well, just because you're bumping off like robbing drug dealers, then you start sort of meeting guys or, or how does that work? You Where, mean in the club? Well, like how do you, what was your initial connection to even know? Well, my initial introduction to the club was uh, that period of time where the six month period from between 12 and 13 and the first time and the second time I went back to the training school. Yeah. My sister who had been gone for a couple of years and who had gone to a training school as well for girls in Galt. She came home one uh, Saturday morning when my mother wasn't home and my brother was gone on the back of a, a motorcycle with a couple other motorcycles that pulled right into my mother's parking lot beside her house. And um, it turned out these were Satan's Choice members. Oh, she was dating and, a guy. She was going out with one of them. Okay. So that was my first introduction to that, and, and it was very appealing. I, I loved what I saw. They came in to the front room of my mom's house, and... They were just roaring and laughing about how the, there was another girl as well with them. Like there was three bikes, two on one, two on another, and then on the in single individual on the other one. But they were all just uh, quite joyous about how the two girls had just um, chain-whipped with their belts chain belts yeah some gas attendant uh, and and not only because they pulled in the fuel up coming in the peterborough right and and not only didn't not pay for the gas robbed the gas attendant of all the money and cigarettes wow <laughs> and they're laughing and i'm thinking i like this i like this so there was my first kind of calling. Right. It was very appealing to me. And when them guys got to leave, the sound of them bikes, they were like tanks yeah. or, or jets. Something just very, very thunderous. <laughs> and then I ran out because I didn't know when I was ever going to see my sister again. Yeah. And then guys backed out my mom's driveway onto the street and every single one of them laid a strip of rubber like halfway down the first block and they were gone like instantly. So, and and I noticed not one of them looking to the right or to the left, looking straight ahead. Gone. Going at 60 miles an hour probably. Wow. On, on a residential street, Bolivar Street. And and then when I heard them come, I couldn't believe what I'm, And they were down to the corner of Park and Bolivar, and I could hear them screeching, like, with their brakes. 
<laughs> you know, I'm going like, I love this. Yeah. I can't wait to get one of them. Okay, so I'll be doing the same thing. Okay, so then, so then you have these experiences with the p- people ratting you out, and you don't want that. So how? Okay. So how then did you become a member? Well, like I said, I don't really want to go into the details of it, uh, which is fine. Yeah. Um, but when the final straw that broke the camel's back for me to decide, that's it. I can't trust anybody, including family. The club is the my last resort. I know I can trust these people. I know that they're my kind of people. So uh, uh, I walked down to the president's house, who's I'd, I'd never been to before. And when I knocked on the door, a good friend of mine I'd known since I was fourteen. Um, opened the door and greeted me, and he had a full patch on. Um, had his bike up on the kitchen table, grinding away, getting it ready for a paint job. And the president guy um, came to the door, and he says, what do you want here? And I said to him, I come to join your club. He says, come on in here. So after about uh, seven or eight hours... I walked out of there with my buddy who was living in the clubhouse with my own key. Wow. And told what bedroom would be mine. So I had a place of residency and uh, it was like a brand new life just opening up for me. And I was running into it at 110 miles an hour. Yeah. I couldn't wait for for my bike now. And and I'd seen these guys at different times, you know, ripping by you at 90 miles an hour down the highway, n- not looking to the left to the right. Just the, they own the they own the road. Yeah, they were like gods to me on two wheels. And so now you're a prospect. You got a place. Well, no, I hadn't started prospecting yet. Okay, there's a procedure to that. Okay, yeah, um, but I was living in the house. And so I uh, actually had uh, um, sponsorship, which means like approval, you know, to live there by a full patch uh, member. In this case, the president himself. And then the very next morning after my first sleep, um, the sergeant at arms came in and uh, he loved me. He, he knew me already. I'd had encounters with him. We'd done some things together, and he knew me. Actually, he told me one day, he said, Billy, he says, I'm going to be getting you a Harley one day, and you're going to be one of us. <laughs> so he come in the door, and he just both fell over backwards. Finally, he says, you're here. <laughs> yep. And really, after all you've been through in your life, you're just looking for identity and a place to belong, right? And to be accepted. Yeah. Like a family that um, accepts me. Yeah, I'm not perfect. But um, if you can't accept who I am, well, I've got no use for you either. Yeah. You best not get in my way where I'm walking. So, um, 
yeah, it, it was it was a wonderful experience. So, um, yeah, they brought my vote up to begin the prospect um, or strike. We we called it striking back then. Same thing, probationary period. Um, they brought it up, and I, I was voted in to begin striking, and then um, um, didn't didn't take to me didn't take too long, and. I was able to uh, um, get my full patch and uh, um, terrible thing about it was this was all happening in um, late fall. So riding season was just coming to an end and snow was starting to fall. You know, so guys were you know, stripping their bikes apart and rebuilding them, getting them ready for the next riding season. And um, so th- that part of the life wasn't wasn't available until next riding season. Yeah. But there's the other life. <laughs> and um, I blended right in. It was like putting jelly on peanut butter. It was a perfect fit for me. Yeah. With anything and everything. They knew I could be depended on and I was reliable. And and so um really it was a very short stint for me because and I in hindsight, you know, I know I, I, I give the Lord the praise. Even though I don't even talk to me about religion at that point in my life. That's not a good subject to come around me with. But in hindsight, actually right back to childhood, I can see how the Lord's had his hand. And you know what, brother? It wasn't that long ago that the Lord literally showed me a vision of me being about three or four years old and him looking about to be a teenager, but bigger and a little guy like I am, and he's bent over with a wonderful smile on his face. And he's got a hold of my arms. And he said, I'm never going to let go of you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and this just happened. Mm. It was like he was showing me all these years later how he'd see me and designated to be my big brother, my real buddy, my best friend, my protector, my provider, my everything, just because of that message of how he said, I'm never going to let go of your arms. Mm. And this years and years after all, all the stuff, the life that I had experienced already. So, um, so, um, I get you know January in and February in, and then March. I I got a bike that's being assembled, prepared for the next riding season. Um, but uh, I um. I had an encounter 
with a drug dealer up in Georgian Bay area. And, um, I come out of it with, um, I, I got, I actually got arrested and, um, I actually, uh, ended up, uh, with a, with a couple charges from that and, um, um, got an eight and a half year prison sentence. Wow. And that was in April, 1973. And how long had you been in the club at that time? Four or five months. So you only just got in yeah. to a place where you felt belonging. Yeah. And it's widely known, or at least it is to me anyways, that the brotherhood in these motorcycle clubs is thick, right? Very. And so you're four or five months into a place where you feel like you belong and you yeah. people aren't going to rat you out now and yeah. you're in prison for eight years. That's right. Wow. But <laughs> I never took my patch off. I mean, uh, in my heart, I am who I am now. This is my identity. Yeah. So when I walked through the doors of the old Kingston Penitentiary, which was not a big shock or a big deal for me, I'd already been used to walking in behind locked doors since I was 10. Wow. As a matter of fact, that first day I walked in, there were several kids, now 20-year-olds, Thereabouts, run up to me, Billy. And there were kids that I've been with 10 years earlier in the training school. Right. Now here they are in the penitentiary. And, uh, but I got a tattoo, a club tattoo on my arm up here. And, uh, you know, it's like the best you could get, you know, a bottle of Indian ink and a needle with thread on the end of it. And oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> but, but, but it identified who I was. Yeah. And then uh, Kingston Ben at the time had just was recovering from the riot from 1971, I think it was. 7071. So it was still in shambles. They were just using it as a reception center. Anybody sentenced to federal time had to go there, but they were only there until they were assessed what classification of an institution they were going to be shipped out to. Right. Maximum, medium, or minimum. And um, that was about a, I think it was about six, eight weeks of a process. So they um, classed me uh, medium security. And so I got shipped over to Collins Bay Institution. Um, first day I walked in the door, I, there, there's a club brother there. And so that was the beginning. I know this is going to be hard to understand, but if you ever have to do time, that was the beginning of a wonderful way of having to serve time because I've already got a club brother there. So that means any drug I want is already available. Wow. Anything I want is already available. Contraband, anything. 
and nobody's going to mess with you in there. Well, um, they'd be better advised not to. Yeah. There, there might be people who resent who you are um, because of some bad experience they had themselves that some way, somehow, they might have thought that somebody else had <laughs> something to do with it or... But, you know, every man makes his bed and has to lay in it. Yeah. But, you know, it's pretty easy to point the finger at others and yeah, make yourself innocent looking. I'm only guilty because of whatever. But yeah, those, those, those type of issues never really surfaced really too, too often. If ever, 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 ever it did, it, it would have been dealt with very quickly yeah um i'm sure so you obviously must go into this in more detail in your book hey a little Mm, bit like i I talk a bit about the whole journey i don't go into detail like depth okay i I don't really uh think that's necessary well yeah and so i'm just thinking right like as intriguing as it is um you know of what that would have been like and stuff like that I'd, i'd just really like to sort of jump ahead to at what point in your time with this club or in prison or whatever mm-hmm. did things start to shift for you okay. where you started searching for the Lord or, Ooh. or the identity that you think you found or whatever, yeah, or just, yeah, sure. No, right? I, I never searched for the Lord. Well then never, he searched, he found me, he found you. Yeah, so let's get to, plan. Yeah. so sure. let's get to the yeah, goods. Okay. It's really cool how that all came about. Because all these trips um, into jails and training schools and prisons, I always had one uncle from uh, Toronto area, New Toronto was called at the time, um, who would always come to visit me. And we were used to visits with them. Because like I said, Todd, uh, with my mom being a single working parent, raising three kids, um, uh, these uh, relatives of ours from Toronto helped her out. Like, basically, the only evidence that I could give you on that, as an example, would be, say, Christmas time. Every Christmas, we'd either go to Toronto or they would come to Peterborough. And we got to know that when we go there and they come, we're getting clothes. That's going to be our gifts from them. And and my mom, she was going to buy the funkier type of gifts, like chemistry sets and, you know, toys or, you know, those kind of, I think that they had to have had it arranged. But that uncle, anytime he come to visit me, he never, ever, ever spoke a condemning word against me. Like, he never said, like, you know, anything negative, like, Anything, ever, ever. Or, you know, he, he probably could have, you know, like, you know, all the gray hairs you put in your mouth. It, that, that wasn't in his heart. It was like a breath of fresh air. He come into the world that I'm in. I welcome that because it was a wonderful, wonderful escape from my world when he would be visiting with me. Right. Until you'd leave. Now I go back to my world. Yeah. 
He just come in and love you. He kept coming in and love me. So one day he comes to visit me in Collins Bay when I'm doing my eight and a half year stretch. And 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 he, he just off the cuff he says, um, "Do you have a library in there?" And I go, "Yeah," but I never go there. He says, "Well, have you got any buddies that might go there?" Yeah, why? He says, "Well, I got a book. Maybe you might be interested in it. I've just finished reading it. You might really be interested in it." What's the title of the book? He said, "The Cross and the Switchblade." I said, "Whoa." Don't go any further with that. I am not interested in anything at all like that. You want to continue to visit me? Don't ever, ever, ever visit me with any intent of bringing religion into the visit. You understand? Okay. But he didn't quit coming. But he wouldn't bring that up mm. until one day. Now, neither of us knew this, but it was going to be the last time either of us saw one another. After the end of the visit, when the inmates were lining up and filing back to go down back into the cell blocks, and the visitors were lining up to go through a couple lock barriers to return back to the parking lot, there was a spot right in behind where the guards used to sit to overview the visiting room that was wide open, like a little hallway about six, seven feet wide. Bars at that end for them, people filing out, and bars at this end to keep the little area locked. Right. Just happened that, that day, as we were both filing out, I look over there, and there's my uncle just at the same time. And you can't really stop walking. You got to keep going. Um, <laughs> I'm waving, and he yells out, "Jesus loves you." <laughs> I'm thinking, next time you come down, Bucko, you're gonna hear about that one. <laughs> <laughs> he died about a month later. Wow! Before he came back. Yeah. So. So, um, one day, uh, the authorities of the institution announced that uh, the CBC wanted to come in and uh, do a recording uh, titled Music from Prison. So, I'm a bit of a musician, and uh, I was able to get involved with this recording. It was all being held over at one of the chapels, and... um, um, we were able to, it was basically going to be about a week and it was a week's, what we would call in jail, stall. In other words, not the normal routine, but something different for certain individuals. So the musicians didn't have to go to work every day now or go to school or whatever they were doing with their time there. They could all go over and be at this session at this chapel to do the recording for the CBC. So they were interviewing individuals and and recording the music for a program that they wanted to put across the radio waves. So I was asked to join over uh, with several bands 
And I did. And then one of my club brothers asks if I could get him over there for the week stall. And I said, of course. So he, he came along with me on the first day. And um, we wanted to case the timing that the guards would come around to do a head count. Because we had ideas of getting high <laughs> while we were over there, too. We got high every day, all day, every day, all day. But now we're outside of our playground, so we got to kind of case it out, like, when's it safe, you know, to go outside the doors of this chapel and smoke a doober. Yeah. So we see what time the guards come through, and then we time it how long it is before they come back again. So the second day, we know their routine, so we know when we can run out the door. So we run out the door, and just by accident, I happened to hit this little bookshelf that was about four feet high off the ground, three levels of books on it, and they all fall to the ground. And I look back, and I go, well, I'll pick that up when I come back in, which I did. I come back in. And I started just putting the books all back on the shelf. And the very last book, guess what? <laughs> there it is. The cross and the switchblade. Come on. I go, well, you know, in honor of my uncle, I'm going to keep this book. So I stole it. I put it in my back pocket. <laughs> he stole it. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, in yeah. front of the shop. Sure. Well, yeah. I put it in my back pocket, and then when I got back to myself, I threw it in a little cardboard box with personal goods in it, never, ever had any intention of reading it. It was just a memorabilia, yeah. you know, out of the honor towards my uh, my uncle, who was always a good man. So <laughs> um, there came a time when uh, the warden uh, said to me and one of my club brothers, that your string of luck has ran out. You are both charged with suspicion of being suspicious characters. And you, my brother, who only had a couple of three months left on his sentence, was sentenced to serve the remaining of his time from the whole uh, disassociation or segregation. Uh. Me, who I still had like 50 or 60 months left, Got shipped to Super Maximum, Mill Haven. And of course, my little box of personal goodies comes along with me. It just happened when I showed up there, the whole institution was in a lockdown because there had been a riot. And um, when there's a riot, I mean, nobody moves. They get everything settled down and then slowly open up to the regular system of life in there again. So I got nothing to do. I mean, you can write letters, but they're not being mailed out. You can't have visits. Um, there's no outside yard activity. You're in your cell 24-7. They just they open up one door at a time, so you can go to the end of the cell block and pick up your meal, take it back to your cell, that's it, until they open your door to return your tray. And that's it. For, so you get out of your cell three times a day to get your meal, return the tray. That's it. 
There's nothing else to do. So <laughs> I've read every book that I've got, written letters already that I want to mail when that opens up again. Yeah. I got one book left to look at. So I reluctantly grab it and start reading it across in the switchblade. And um, at first, you know, it's a pretty good little journey. I can kind of relate to this dude, Nicky Cruz, you know, because we kind of got some similarities. You know, he's living the the gang life and all that, what's involved with it, you know, the wars, the enemies, the cops, the partying, the girls, the drugs, the booze. I can relate to that. And then in the book, all of a sudden this preacher guy shows up. And the first thing I see is that he's assembling. This is in New York City. He's assembling all the street gangs who war against one another to come together in some building, like church, I don't know what it was. But he wants them all there. So they've different sections for the different gangs for seating. Is this a true story book? Yeah. 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 Okay. I've got a copy of it, brother. I'll give it to you to read. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Yeah, cool. But this is Nikki's testimony, right? Okay. That I'm yeah. talking about right now. Yeah. Because it's part of my testimony. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm telling you where the change occurs, and I end reading the book. And it's when um, all the gang leaders, um, they want to steal the money that the preacher man had just uh, had them all collect for, you know, uh, an offering. And Nicky says, no, we're giving them the money. And, and because of the respect that they all have for Nicky, reluctantly... They honor his demand. That was it. I fold the book because I can sense there's a change coming that I don't care about. There's not going to be anything else now in this book that's going to interest me. So I never read it anymore. But I didn't throw the book out. Kept the book, went with me for the rest of my journey in a, in a penal system. Get released on parole in 1978, September 78. Within a year, my wife and I moved to Alberta only with the intention of serving the rest of my parole without it being violated. My club supported that. Billy, you've done enough time. We need you on the street. Go somewhere, finish your parole off, and then you can return and give it 100%. My parole officer supported it because I was honest with him. You go out to Alberta, you don't know anybody and Well, and all I did that actually kind of meet a guy in, in Millhaven who, who I ended up working with in that first year of uh, my parole release, living in Kingston. And um, we were working for a furniture moving company in Kingston. And... Um, uh, so that's like going from September 78 into uh, around June of 79. 
And uh, he quit working there, and he said, I'm going back out west, and I'm going to make some real money. So he'd come back every four or five weeks and call call me up. And, oh, what are you doing? Say, oh, do you want to come down to the bar? And he'd never let me pay for a round. And he was always flipping $20 tips to the waitress. And I'm going like, what are you doing out there? He said, working the rigs. You know, my only definition of working the rigs was people who use syringes to inject drugs. Right. So I'm thinking he's selling drugs. But but then he makes it clear. He says, drilling rigs. You know what they drill for gas and oil in Alberta? Oh, really? I didn't know that. And um, he says, I can get you a job out there anytime you want. My mother's boyfriend is a driller. And he has hiring and firing authority. Really? So right away, you know, I start talking to my club. Hey, I might go to Alberta. I talk to my parole officer. What's the chances of getting a transfer on parole to Alberta? He's got to look into that. Um, it all worked out. Yeah. Got to Alberta. Still got the book. I'm, I had an accident on the rig and I'm on compensation and I'm like, really, I'm trying to find things to do through the day. We'd, we'd found a place up in Red Deer to live. Um, my, my wife was, uh, babysitting, the landlord's kids of the condominium we were living in. And because she was Roman Catholic, raised, born and raised in Italy, you don't get any more Roman Catholic than that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> I gave her that book. I said, here, you believe in that God stuff. You might find some interest in this while you're bored. Babysitting. So I'm out driving around the city casing jobs. <laughs> and I drive by the sign, I think, oh, man, live, look at that. They're showing the movie, The Cross and Switchblade. Couldn't get home quick enough to tell her, throw the book away, I'll take you to the movie. Next day, we drive down to the area. I thought it was. The sign wasn't there anymore. And I wasn't even sure I was in the right area. So all of a sudden, Todd, um, I, I, I felt I had to tell her, uh, a few things that she didn't know. And it was going to be my deciding factor with what I was going to do now. Because really, honestly, I did not like being in Alberta. It was too far away from my, my family, my club. It was too far away from me. So so my only hope of surviving this parole for another two and a half years, she was already in the midst of it. She, it was like her was the, she was the catalyst of this whole move. Like if she wasn't agreeable to relocating until my parole was over, because she had family in Italy in Kingston that relied on her. She, it was a big decision for her. So, but she was like the catalyst. Now there was a couple things I needed. I felt I needed to tell her in order for me to know what I'm doing. So I tell her things I've already done since I've been out on parole. She knew nothing about. And and this instantly was not received. 
instantly we were heading to the lawyer's office in Red Deer to get the uh, divorce proceedings started. So um, now I know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm getting divorced and I don't care. And I'm going back to my club and I don't care if I end up back in jail because that's all there is to look forward to anyways. Either that or a shell with your name engraved in it. And I already knew that. And I, I was open to that. I was welcoming that. I was, I was looking forward to it. I was so devoted and dedicated, you know, knowing that that's the way it's going to end. That It was like from one day to the next. Yeah. You know, can it be today? Who's who's it going to come from? How's it going to happen? You know, didn't matter. Life didn't matter. But I'd found my secure place and willing to do that. It's kind of like, I guess, joining up in the military. You know, I mean, you, you know, there's a really good chance you're not coming back home. Yeah. But you're going anyways because you're devoted. Yeah. You're giving it all your life, everything. That was me. So now I'm, I'm, I'm saying, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going back. And then um, when we go out to uh, go to the lawyers, there's a flyer under the windshield wiper, which I, I just threw onto the pavement, parking lot pavement. It was October. So I had to wait a few minutes for the windows to defog. Ten minutes, get back in the car. She's in the passenger side. I mean, she... She hasn't even looked at me now for a couple of days. I'm sleeping on the couch. She was there, but but she was not acknowledging me. She only had one thing and one thing only: getting out of this relationship. Right. Go back into the car to head down to the lawyers. There's another flyer in the windshield wiper. This time I grabbed it. I read it for some reason. I don't know why, but can you believe this? I mean, this. I said, you're not going to believe this. I've had this book for a few years now. I went to show you the movie the other day. Couldn't find it. This guy, he, he's coming to Red Deer this week. Nikki Cruz. Yeah. She said, give me that. She reading it. And then she put it down, she looking straight ahead at the windshield, and she made this announcement just like this. She says, I have to go and hear what this man has to tell me because he's going to tell me how I'm going to continue to live the rest of my life without you in it. And I go, good. To me, that there was still a glimmer of hope. So it's we're not going for a divorce procedure now. It's turned the ignition off. And now it's like, okay, he's playing at, or speaking at a place called Olds, which we didn't know where it was, on a Wednesday evening. Now, this is Monday morning. And uh, Wednesday, and then Saturday was going to be in Red Deer at the Capri Center. She wants to go to Old Wednesday, two days away. So I'm like, okay, I got a map. Let's see where it is. Okay, it's straight down Highway 2, 
about halfway between Red Deer and Calgary. Easy to find. High school gymnasium, we'll find it. Well, you're not coming with me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am. Please? <laughs> like, I don't want to see you, like, not be able to get there and get back home. You're not coming with me. Oh, come on. Like, I'm not letting you leave without me. Mm. She says, and you can ride in the trunk. I said, no, that ain't happening. I'll ride in the back seat. I'm not going in the trunk. <laughs> I'm with a crazy Italian woman <laughs> <laughs> who had relatives <laughs> in that reception lineup. And they put the bear hug on you at the money line. Yeah. You can feel the holsters under there. No, I'll ride in the back seat. She let me. Yeah. We got there. And we went in the door to the gymnasium. It was packed. I said, I'll be in the car when you get out. She walks in. I walk out. I get about halfway to the door. And, uh, this young lady uh, put her arm up on mine. And she says, uh, was that your wife that just walked in? I said, yeah. And she says, well, would you like to a seat there? I'm saying only on one condition. There's got to be two empty seats, and you're going to sit with me, too. Oh, she said, let's go and have a look. Walk down. It's not a comfortable zone for me. Right up the middle aisle, about four or five rows from the back of the stage. One empty seat. That doesn't go well for me because I'm a very proud man. And now I am standing here in a gymnasium full of people. They're all eyes on me. I got to take the seat. <laughs> I got it. I, you know, that was my response. So so that evening, um, when the altar call, oh, before even uh, Nikki Cruz, uh, like Tony Montana accent. Yeah. Comes out and, and, you know, kind of a unique looking dude. And um, he, he announced right away when the, he was introduced. First thing he said, I know that God had just, he had a plan already for what he was going to talk about. But God just told him right now that he was to speak about forgiveness in marriages. It's the first thing he says. Very first thing. So I'm going like this to her. You're right. You were right. You're going to hear about how... What, you're you, beside your wife. I'm sorry? You, when you said you're, like you're beside your wife with yeah, that empty no, seat. I, well, we're sitting in the seats listening to this guy starting. Okay. And, yeah. and when he says, uh, you know, he's going to speak tonight on forgiveness and marriages, I, I'm kind of elbowing her and, and, and saying, yeah, what you said the other day, it, it's going to happen. He, you know, he he's going to speak to you about how you can carry on in life, maybe with me in it. That's what I said to her. Right. <laughs> so... You know, she's not interested, really, but kind of maybe a slight possibility of that. I didn't listen to a word he said. I couldn't understand anything he said. 
It was like I wasn't interested. I only wanted her to get better. And um, when the altar call came, she was the first one up. She just shot out like a bullet. And and then what happened with me was, you know, we're standing. Everybody's standing by this point in time. And, um, you know, when you're in, in a... Uh, compartment store and they're about to make an announcement and they go like get you, to get your attention like the, I don't know if it's the same now but it used to be ding yeah, you know a little bow sort of a sound yeah, and then they would make their announcement well all of a sudden I'm standing there and wondering how long is she going to be and you know like come on let's go and then all of a sudden ding And then these words, Billy, I've heard your pleas and cries for help and answered them. But every time you reneged on the deal, this will be your last chance. And just as quickly as the word chance ended, flashes of near-death experiences that I have been encountered in, and in them encounters, I remember crying out to God, oh God, please save me. Don't let me die. I promise I'll be good. I'll change. Boom, boom, boom. Reneged. Last chance. Oh, yeah, huge wow. So now I'm just standing there like, what am I going to do? I've only got one alternative here. I don't have two choices. I've got one choice, and that's to go up to the front. So for the first time in my life, brother, when I decided in my mind to take that step, make with the right decision, the right for the right purpose, I took one step, bam. He hit me so hard, I felt I could not stop falling to the floor right there. And I weeped and weeped and weeped for about 20, 25 minutes. That's according to the guys who were standing around ready to pick me up when I came out of this encounter. Hmm. And when I came up from that floor, it was kind of like coming back from anesthetic. I, I know. I know it, man. Wow. The weight yeah. that I never even knew that was in my heart had been removed. <laughs> my heart felt so light, and I knew what it was. I knew it was it was hatred that had been removed. It was bitterness taken out. It was resentment. It, it, it was callousness. It's been instantly taken out of my heart. 
And I felt so much lighter. And I, I didn't even know how heavy of a heart I had until it had been removed. My, my life, I was good with it. But when the, the Lord, and I, I love to say the Surgeon General did major heart surgery <laughs> on me on that floor that evening when he was done. It was the most wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience I had ever encountered. Wow. And I knew there and then that this was the beginning of a brand new life. Amen. And I was never, ever, ever going to wear the one percenter patch again. I was That life, old life, was now obliterated. And I was looking so forward to begin the new life. And uh, and that's uh, that was how it occurred, October 27th, 1979. My, on. my spiritual birthday. Born again. Which is exactly to yeah. me that that that's that's the birthday I celebrate. I mean I celebrate November seventeen fifty two as a birth date, but my spiritual awakening, my spiritual rising up, my spiritual coming from that, as the Lord says it, dead zone. Yeah. That one's the one I celebrate the most because of the future that he's given me. All the problem and the life that he's given me now. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I wasn't really living. I was like the walking dead. And so is everybody else that hasn't been born again of the spirit yeah. and water. That's And there's only one destination for that. But there's another plan, and it's the plan I'm talking about. It's the plan that our loving Father has for everybody available for them. Yeah. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Everything Jesus done at the cross of Calvary is the answer. It's all there. Yeah. All of it there. And, and, and uh, you know, I didn't know that at the time of my immediate conversion, brother. I just knew something major had occurred in my heart. And now I'm hungry like a newborn baby. And now feed me that spiritual milk. I, I, I need it. Uh, I couldn't get enough. <laughs> I signed up for Bible college like within a week, and I didn't have a, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. I failed everything, <laughs> but I went to every class, and I did learn some some things, but just wasn't the right time. I've been to since, and yeah. but God's got a great plan for us all. You know, I just want to uh, continue with the time that I have on Earth to. Uh, share that good news. You know what's so powerful? Oh, gosh, I wish we were filming this, but we just were not at that point yet. But but for, for you guys listening, when Billy talked about his uncle coming to see him in prison, and you talked about him saying to you, suggesting the book, and when he said the word cross, the cross and the switchblade, but as Billy spoke of that and he said the word cross, Billy raised his fist and had this face of, of that time of the, like just the word, the cross just brought out anger in him. And just to see 
you now recount encountering the true essence mm. of the father mm. Mm. and uh Hey, we're both a bunch of them. <laughs> we're both getting emotional here. It's a miracle, brother. It's, it's a just miracle. The, it's the essence of the truth of Jesus. Yeah. The pursuit for your life, man, is unbelievable. It, well, it's not unbelievable, but I mean, it's just, it's so powerful. Amen. And that's a powerful God showing his wonderful love. You know, we we tend to blame God for things that go south in our lives. It's not him. It's not him. Yeah. He loves us. And he loves us unconditionally. I mean, look at the state I was in. He loved me. And he loved me enough to not leave me in that state. And he rescued me. And and he's restored me now, and renewed me, and he's continuing to, re, re, reviving me. He's continuing to. It's a wonderful journey because it doesn't end, <laughs> and and we 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 can receive more and more and more from the Lord as we surrender more and more to Him. You know, He says, when you're weak, then you're strong. You know, he says that that pride comes before the fall, but humility is where the victory is. Mm. So, so, so we receive as we surrender our lives, get rid of the pride. Anything to do with that and, and just trust totally in the Lord's power and the Lord's strength and the Lord's word. Totally. Like quit deciding for yourself and and trust him and, and learn what it is he's saying. Listen, read, read his word. Listen when you're in prayer. He'll speak to you. He'll speak to you. He's a loving father. He's not mute. He's he's quite talkative, actually, <laughs> and, and he, he's very, very good in the words that he gives you, and they're always for the better for you. He knows the plans. Yeah, you know they're they're for our good, not to harm us. Yeah, for our good. <laughs> I want good. I want good, and and and, and to give us that hope, that future. Do you know your future? I know mine. I know. Because my loving, heavenly Father has reassured me. And I have absolutely no doubt that when he says, this is your last breath on earth, I know right now the very next breath I take in is going to be with my King Jesus. Amen. It's going to be that quick. <laughs> Come quickly, Lord. <laughs> I'm ready to go today. <laughs> but there's still work to be done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm good with that. But I see, I, you see, I know that, God. Yeah. That, that's my confidence. 
like I was telling you, you know, confident expectation. Yeah. Your definition of hope. Yeah. Amen. And it's happening and it will happen because my father does not. He can't lie. He's a holy God. Yeah. <laughs> he can't lie. So every promise he made uh, is true and does get fulfilled. But we got to seek him. We got to surrender more and depend on him more and rely on his word more. Yeah. Like the word say, you know, that's your, like Jesus said to the lady at the well, you know, I, I've got water for you. They'll give you a life. You know, and other times, you know, at the table, this is the bread yeah. of life. And what do we need to live? We need water and we need bread. We need those things. He knew that. That's why he used those as examples to make us understand that he's the bread we need. He He's the water yeah. we need. And, and when we surrender and accept that as being our food, then the wonderful transformations begin. The renewing of the mind, you know, the, the, the like you were saying earlier, um, the less we sin, you know, we do. We, yeah. I mean, it just works that way because that's his program and, and, and his program works. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming I don't sin. I do. I'm, like I said, you know, the, the, the devil says, ah, you're a, you're a sinner because you sin. Wrong. My father in heaven says, I'm a sinner who he calls a saint yeah. who sins. Huge difference. I know my identity in God. I know my identity it's who he says I am, not anybody else is. Yeah. Him and him only. That's all I got room for in this noodle of mine. <laughs> and my heart. Hey, um, in your book, you talk about then the mending of your relationship with your wife. In your book, do you talk about that? Uh, like, could, well, yeah, uh, a very little because. Well, just because just in the podcast, you talked about her going to the front and then your encounter. So obviously you both yeah, encountered yeah. the Lord. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Billy. Um, so, for, okay. Sorry. Go ahead, brother. Well, I just, I'd like people to read your book, right. To, uh, to, sure. to dive deeper into this and stuff like that. Uh, and we've, uh, yeah. we should probably wrap things up okay, for, for us today, but, um, okay. Yeah, uh, wh- where can you get your book? Where is your book available? From Satan's Choice to God's Chosen. Well, right at this point, it's not available any other place but through me. Okay. We haven't approached uh, book suppliers to get them into bookstores. We haven't approached uh, Amazon or any other sources. Ebook, a book, not available there. Um, only uh, by direct contacting me. And that's the way it's been working really well since we got our first copies at January, the end of January. Um, praise the Lord. We've been able to distribute about 500 copies already. And um, it's it's worked out wonderfully, the setup that we have. Okay, so direct contact by email? Uh email or um, my phone number okay so we'll we'll put we'll put that in the description then whatever you're good with we'll put that in the description so if people want to check out your book they can uh absolutely 
they can contact you and get a copy. Um, thanks for sharing your story, man. Thank you for letting me uh, have this opportunity, Ty. It's been just a, a, a real awesome, delightful privilege and honor, I assure you. Yeah, it's been an, uh, an, an emotional roller coaster of a, of a testimony here. We're yeah. going to have to get some Kleenex in the studio, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I can get smashing away and drums. You got a set of keyboards around? <laughs> <laughs> we got a piano over there. That'll work. <laughs> Let's go uh, rock our grief <laughs> out and praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah. um, Billy, I'd like to ask you one final question, though. Um, as hard as your heart was to hear the word, like to hear anything in, in your story, as you talked about your uncle visiting you, just saying the word cross, just, just closed a steel door immediately. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you had a chance, man, to talk to somebody who, who is living that life or, you know, carries that kind of closeness, but for a brief moment has something open and and at the point where, like you said, you know, you, you knew that you, you were going back to this life. You didn't care. You didn't care if you lived or died. You knew there was a bullet with your name on it, and you just didn't care anymore. So someone is at that point, and you can say something to them. They're just open for a second to hear something about the truth. What would you say to them, man? I'd say the exact same words my uncle said. Jesus loves you. Wow. And never gives up, hey? He never gives up. When he's got you focused through his lens, he will rescue you. Amen. Thanks for sharing, brother. Appreciate it, man. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Todd. Amen. Bless you, Billy. No matter what you're doing, friends. He just continues to pursue us. You can't see it, but I'm telling you right now, Billy is on his face right now. Just give him praise to the Lord. For such a traumatizing childhood and getting into what he got into, not wanting to hear the, the word stone cold against it. He just doesn't give up. He keeps pursuing his children. It's time to shift your curiosity into openness. He has a plan for your life.
de qui 